big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. It's our first episode in 2021. I would say Happy New Year, but we're already off to a really rocky start here in the USA. So I'll just say I hope you're all taking care of yourselves, drinking water, taking occasional breaks from the news, perhaps to listen to this podcast. Before we begin today, we'd like to thank our newest patron, Abby. If you want to be like Abby and get access to exclusive content like our notes, outtakes, bonus episodes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash podandprejudice. And don't forget to check out our stickers over at podandprejudice.com slash merch. These adorable stickers are designed by Torrance Brown and are great for water bottles, laptops, and whatever else you put stickers on. And now, enjoy this week's episode, finally covering the first part of the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice, directed by Joe Wright, with our guest, Will Williams. <laughs> the thumbnail is just her looking really sad. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I froze it on Darcy right after he said, I'm sorry that I've taken up so much of your time or whatever. And then his eyes, like, started to close. And I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Ooh, ooh. We'll get there. But that moment. Oh, 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 I went on such a journey with this movie over the last month. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. I have so many things to say. Me, too. Ugh. Okay. Sorry, you're going to know why I did that. (laughs) This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. The moment you've all been waiting for, dear listeners. You've been waiting so patiently. Drum roll, please. We're here to talk about the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice. Directed by Joe Wright, starring Keira Knightley. And I'm not going to say the other name because I got so chewed out for mispronouncing Jennifer Ely through the entire 1995. His name is Matthew McFadden. <laughs> is it McFadden or McFadden? Well, it's spelled McFadden, so he can, if it's not. It's not. It's spelled McFadden. The Y is in a different place. What? I'm going to Google this right now because I don't want to get yelled at again. By yelled at, I mean we got a lot of nice emails where people were like, sorry, um, it's actually pronounced Ely. <gasps> what? Am I dyslexic? <laughs> no, no, that's like a totally normal reaction here. Hang on. Oh, my God. His name is. So when people emailed us about Jennifer Ely, we had already recorded all 11 episodes oh, that we God. did on the 1995. Oh, no. And I just tacked a thing on the beginning and was like, hey, everybody, we're going to say Jennifer Eel for the next 11 episodes. Strap in. Uh-huh. Please don't tweet. Please don't tweet. <laughs> <laughs> they still quote. Oh, of course they did. If people can tweet, they will. That's, yeah. oh, that's yes. the rules of Twitter. <laughs> Them's the rules. We don't make them. We just live in this horrible place okay according to how to pronounce.com <laughs> it's pronounced like this Matthew McFadden. 
Matthew McFadden. I have some news for 2005 Stan Twitter because I've never seen anyone spell it this way. <laughs> okay, so starring Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. And we're here with a special guest. We have with us Will Williams today. How's it going, Will? It's going. It's going pretty good, actually. Good. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. We're so excited to have you. Will, do you want to tell the people what you do in the podcast world and for your life world? Yeah, for sure. So I am a podcast journalist, critic, whatever word you want to use. I write for sites like Polygon. I uh, used to write for Spotify for podcasters. I write for Discover Pods. Basically, like if a place is talking about podcasts, I've probably written for it at least once. Um, I also sometimes write pieces about food for the takeout. I have some like really goofy ones coming out in 2021 that I'm really excited about. And then in podcasting, I am also the CEO of Hug House Productions. We are a production company and I am the showrunner on our fiction podcast, Valence. So I have written the whole thing with my co-writer, Katie Yeomans, and we are launching season two in January 2021. And I have done all the sound design for season two. So, oh my gosh, that's wild. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that when I first asked you to come on the show, your response was, sure, if you want someone who doesn't love Pride and Prejudice, like I'm down to have that perspective. But I do love this version, this version, and <laughs> this version. <laughs> oh, no, that's so true. <laughs> you were like, oh, shit, do I like Pride and Prejudice? Oh, I have news for you. <laughs> that is still, I think, where I am with the story as a whole, where like I tell myself that I don't like it, but I really am very devoted to certain adaptations. This being one of them, I am a fan. We'll get to that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. So you've started to tell the people a little bit about yourself, but why don't you tell the people your experience with Jane Austen in general? Yeah, so oh, I have read Pride and Prejudice. I have read Emma. I've read, I believe I've read Mansfield Park. Um, and I did not enjoy a single one of them. I did oh. not enjoy the experience. <laughs> I did not like it. I did it because I had to. I am very much a like, modern American lit person. Like I'm a Vonnegut person. I like when things are like upsetting and disgusting and very strange and kind of funny. So reading Jane Austen for me is like, like, I just want to shake everyone's shoulders and be like, you're fine. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. The, the stakes are very low in Austen compared to some other stories in the canon. Yes, absolutely. I think that in terms of like this era or similar eras, like I'm much more of a, a Jane Eyre person. Like she went through it, man. She did. You know, <laughs> like speaking as someone whose favorite book from this era is Wuthering Heights, I get. Oh, that. yeah. OK, you know what's up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I tend to go more for like bigger drama, kind of bigger vibes, too. But I watched the 2005 Pride and Prejudice when it came out, expecting very little. I think that I went with some like friends in, I don't know, I guess like middle school. And I loved it. I was very taken by it. I really like some of the sort of dialogue direction in it, um, which I think was kind of new for an adaptation of like classic literature, which again, I'm sure we'll get into. Mm -hmm. And then I at some point watched 
Bride and Prejudice, the Bollywood adaptation, and I absolutely loved it. It's wonderful. And then I watched The Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which I very, very, very love. I also love Emma Approved. They're both so good. Uh, and then someone was like, well, if you if you like this 2005 version, first off, you shouldn't because it's bad. And second off, you should really watch the BBC miniseries because it's the only one that matters. And I watched the BBC miniseries and I was like, I, I don't think we can be friends. <laughs> like, not because, not because I think it's bad, but because what a thing to say that that is the only version that matters and is good. Uh, uh, people are devoted. <laughs> people are devoted. Yeah. So not, not for me. I tend to like the versions that aren't quite as enamored with the source material <laughs> because that is where I also fit. Yeah, I think it makes sense to despise the 1995 if you didn't like reading the book because it is just word for word what was in the book. Yes. And when I first sat down to watch this version, I had just finished the 1995 version. So mm. I was like, this sucks. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not a good experience. They're butchering. It's not Pride and Prejudice. But then I took a few weeks off to cool down. I came back to it and I watched it. I was like, I'm going to watch this as its own entity. Not as I put a thing out on Twitter. I was like, who likes this movie? Tell me why. <laughs> I had you explain to yep, me. Caro yep. explained to me. And I was like, okay, I'm starting to understand. And then I watched it again and I was like, this is pretty good. Then I watched it a third time and I was like, this is actually awesome because a lot of the stuff that happens in Pride and Prejudice is not necessary. (laughs) And they they got rid of that part. Oh, yes. They trim a lot of fat. That brings us to our next question. What is your favorite thing in the Austin canon that can be an adaptation, a book? Probably not a book. Sounds like it's not going to be a book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say probably the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. It's between that and Emma Approved. So both of those adaptations for me have like highs and lows. Emma Approved, I like more across the board, but some of the like secondary character performances I cannot handle. Whereas the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, I think is like more inconsistent across its entire span, but the performances and casting themselves are consistent enough to really carry it through the inconsistencies and pacing of writing. So I think, yeah, I think Lizzie Bennett Diaries is probably, probably my favorite. Very good choice. So which heroine or character in the Austin canon do you feel you most relate to and why? Emma Woodhouse. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) When I watched Emma Approved the first time, I was like, oh, this is me. And then I was like, oh, no, this is me. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) No spoilers to Molly, but make of that what you will, Molly dear. Mm. <laughs> Love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I very much identify with like a very, very well-intentioned person who <laughs> who is very, very, very type A and much nosier than they need to be. I realize I have just described journalism um, and I am a parody <laughs> of myself. Uh, <laughs> But hey, if the shoe fits, like, had I not gotten into journalism, I probably would have gone into event planning. I I love both equally. So Emma Woodhouse really speaks to me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how could you have those qualities and relate to Emma Woodhouse sarcastically? <laughs> because <laughs> I have one last question for you. And because you have 
some clear Austin hot takes. What is your hottest Austin hot take? Oh, God. Okay. My hottest Austin hot take. That was a lot to say. Uh, (laughs) It would have to be that I think that most versions of Mr. Darcy in the book and in adaptations are absolutely fucking unbearable and I can't stand them. This is perhaps the only Mr. Darcy I can stomach. This and perhaps kind of the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. I can't handle him in the miniseries. I can't handle him. I'm that sorry. That is so fascinating for <laughs> my takes on this 2005 version of Mr. Darcy. Oh, I'm sure. I am yes. very much in the minority here. It is a spicy take. <laughs> that it is a like five chili peppers hot take. <laughs> What are the scovels on that take? Do you have something against Colin Firth or is it just his performance in that? Oh, maybe I do just have something against him in general. Okay, here's, I mean, here's the thing. White male actors bore me uh, incredibly. That's fair. (laughs) I can't tell the Chris's apart. Genuinely, I don't know which one is which. They're all just in Marvel. Yeah, they're just, they're just Marvel. (laughs) Like, it doesn't matter to me which ones do which things. I don't. They're all a Chris. The same goes for every British male actor. They are all the same person in my head. And then also Ewan McGregor exists. He's the exception. Thank God. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Praise be to Ewan McGregor. Honestly. So they're either Ewan McGregor or they're not. Those are my categories. <laughs> so the thing about most of the performances is I feel like they tend to go more cocky and like really toe to toe with Elizabeth. Instead of being painfully awkward and having zero understanding of how communication works. And that's what I like about this version. Like, for me, he seems less like an asshole and more like he just really fundamentally is in his own head, is cripplingly shy and awkward, and does not understand the impact his words will have on other people. And I like that he comes across as very honest in this adaptation, usually in a way that is deeply flawed. I don't like Mr. Darcy's that are intellectually competitive with Elizabeth. I like that this version isn't. He's just saying what he believes to be true and then is continually like taken aback and astounded by her retorts. Yeah. That shit's hot. Like <laughs> it is really hot. Very hot. Very different, obviously, yeah. than the yes. 1995. You've hit the nail on the head on what is so different, not only in the aesthetics and the pacing, but also the actual love story itself in this version. And it's fascinating because it's one of those changes from book to movie that has really seeped itself into pop culture in a big way. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think that this Darcy is as Darcy was written necessarily. I think that, yes, Darcy is awkward and we all realize that when we get to the end of the book, but it's what you said is that Darcy always goes toe-to-toe with Elizabeth. They're always butting heads. And this Darcy is such a departure from that that like when I first watched this I was like that's not Darcy like this is a totally different film for sure and I think that's okay now um after having watched it thrice but (laughs) the thing is that in culture as you said Becca Darcy is now so beloved like I posted a meme yesterday that was the Jane Lynch uh the Sue Sylvester saying I'm going to create a and I did 
Jane Austen writing Pride and Prejudice, I'm going to create a love interest that is so socially awkward. <laughs> and I think that's not necessarily how you would read the book at first, but that's how this Darcy has made everyone think of him. So props to him. I will say that it was fascinating to watch you read this book because you had an authentic 2005 versionless read on Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. And watching your journey with the character of Darcy, part of it is that you learn and realize that he is a human disaster boy. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it is that he's genuinely not nice and then becomes nice through the story. Right. And this Darcy is nice from the start. Yes. Like he he didn't, he was just trying to brush Bingley off when he said the thing about her being tolerable. He was smitten the moment he saw her walking the ball. We'll get there. So as I said, this version was directed by Joe Wright and it was written by Deborah Mogat or Mogach. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. People are going to email us no matter what. Yep. So M-O-G-G-A-C-H. Mogach. 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 Anyway, she wrote the script and she originally wrote it quite close to the original story. But Joe Wright convinced her to take certain liberties, to modernize some of the text, and to change a few of the dynamics in the story, particularly the dynamics of the Bennett family. Now, they didn't want to create the same exact Regency era realism that the original one did. So instead, they they opted for a more modern cinematography, one that really tried to draw in younger audiences and touch on the same themes as Pride and Prejudice, but without the exact word-for-word adaptation of the story, partially because the 1995 version can't really be recreated. It is mm-hmm. a beat-for-beat adaptation of the book. Why create the same thing twice? So the movie was actually very well received. It was nominated for several Oscars, including Best Actress for Keira Knightley. <laughs> huh. That's funny. Yeah, we're going to talk about that quite a bit. Huh. Okay. <laughs> I think she's great. She's she's as Keira Knightley as ever. That's yes. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> oh, yes. But one of my least favorite things about this is the reception of the story from the critics. And I think my problems with the critics can be summed up in one New York Times review from November 11th, 2005. This was written by a Stephen Holden. And the title of this review is Marrying Off Those Bennett Sisters Again, But This Time Elizabeth is a Looker. Ah! Uh, oh, no! <laughs> I just lost some of the dinner that I just ate. I know. Yeah. The whole selling of the movie, the sale of the movie is about the fact that everyone was really hot in it. That's so bizarre to me. Yeah, particularly Keira Knightley as the sort of beautiful young Elizabeth Bennet. And granted, Jennifer Ely was rather old to be playing 20 when the movie came out in 1995. Yeah. But that is a common thing that they will do in many Jane Austen adaptations. You will see, I'm looking at you, Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> well, also, but, but she's not she's not that old. And also, if you're going to call Jennifer Ely unattractive, then just, like, get out of my house. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're no. not calling her unattractive, but there is a... Well, you know what? Yeah, they are. And it's fucked up. Yeah, yeah. it's fucked up. Kira Knightley was, like, in 2005, she was, like one of the like quote-unquote hottest women like in Hollywood she was such a big thing honestly a lot of the discussion around Kira Knightley looking back on this era specifically was so weird and so like 
like repulsive there was so much discussion about like look at how skinny she is she's the skinniest skinny and it's so hot and then the other pushback was like she's too skinny and i hate you all and like well both of these are bad <laughs> like, yeah that's hollywood summed up oh yeah basically yeah like can we just let a woman exist and do her job please also she was 18 when this movie came out yeah. am i wrong in saying that 18 when it was filmed i believe yeah so she was at, at most 19 that's oh my god disturbing i mean like she is so beautiful yes but let her act and judge it based on that like jesus yeah okay well fuck that guy stephen holden is that his name yeah apparently yeah you said you said that it was written by someone and then he said Stephen and I was like oh this is gonna blow (laughs) (laughs) yes yes you just know immediately you guys remember when I had like a gagging sound when I opened a review I was like yeah that's (laughs) it yes so one of the things about this adaptation is that it really does break through into the main Hollywood zeitgeist in a way the 1995 one doesn't and that has its advantages and it has its disadvantages The advantage is that this story, this movie, more than anything, brings Pride and Prejudice to the masses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It indoctrinated a whole generation of young people who enjoy these stories and got them on a path of enjoying more stories of this type. So that is a very good thing about this adaptation. The bad part about it is that this movie gets a bad rap with diehards for the book Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of its obsession with everyone being really attractive, of in some people's view, the watering down of Mr. Darcy, mm-hmm. of the sort of shirking of the Wickham plotline, the emphasis on some period inaccuracies. For example, this movie set in the late 18th century as opposed to the early 19th century, about 30 years earlier than the book. Yeah, that's what I was going to actually say. I watched this video someone, I think one of our listeners sent me about the costumes and the YouTuber's name was Abby Cox. And what she said was that they said it earlier because that was when it was written and it was released after she had already written some other what was her first book? Sense and Sensibility. Sense and Sensibility. So she had already, she wrote Pride and Prejudice. She wrote Sense and Sensibility, published it, published Pride and Prejudice. And in that time, the styles changed and all of that. So I guess what Joe Wright was going for was this is what it would have been in her head. Okay. That is fascinating. And it was pretty. Yeah. It is a beautiful movie. My personal take on this movie is I really like this movie. I enjoy the hell out of it. I think it's not exactly. The 1995 or the book and it shouldn't be because it's its own different take on this story it's a story that I love and it's told in a different way here and I never don't like it's so fun to watch this movie I think that this movie also like it both solidified a lot of what Hollywood was doing at the time but in a more mainstream way and I think that it also paved the way for a lot of similar adaptations down the line like I think that without this adaptation we wouldn't have the I think Kira Knightley Anna Karenina we probably wouldn't have the Anya Taylor-Joy Emma that came out and we certainly would not have the Greta Gerwig Little Women mm. yeah there is so much crossover between these two which I didn't I hadn't seen Little Women before I watched Pride and Prejudice this version the last time I've watched it since and then today watched Pride and Prejudice again. And the way that 
the 2005 Pride and Prejudice blends this aesthetic and this era with more modern Hollywood borderline mumblecore dialogue direction, like going for that very naturalistic sense where, you know, we kind of have like directors like Baumbach and Gerwig and to some extent like I feel like this pulls on the rhythm that you can find in like Sorkin's work where it's very snappy back and forth versus giving the dialogue a lot of room to breathe like I really love how characters in this cut each other off speak over each other and that gets so much more heightened uh kind of in the modern day adaptations now with things like Little Women, where it's hyper-realistic, hyper-naturalistic. That's very much more my style than a, like, heightened dialogue, you know? Which is another reason why the 95, I was like, I can't handle this. Absolutely. Like, this is not how people speak. (laughs) Right. And I don't think anyone can deny that this movie is sumptuous to look at everything Mm -hmm. is beautiful from the cinematography to the costumes to the actual people in the costumes (laughs) everything is just a very pretty thing to look at and listen to the music when it started I was like this sounds familiar and then I realized that I listened to the soundtrack for four years in college as my study music without realizing it the soundtrack rules Meryton Town Hall is a bop like Mm -hmm. it's so good I worked at a music store for a long time in high school and college, the kind of music store where we sold instruments and sheet music. And without fail, we would sell out of the Pride and Prejudice sheet music book for piano every time we ordered inventory. Like, for years, for years. years. I didn't even start working there until, I don't know, 2008. And we had to order more every single time. Because it rules. It does so good. Rule that. It's so good. <laughs> and on that note, I think this is a perfect lead into talking about the movie almost 45 minutes into recording. <laughs> <laughs> we love to see it. So my first notes were that this is pretty because the title <laughs> slide is a beautiful sunrise. The music. Do, 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 do. Great, great stuff. Lizzie is reading a book, walking home, wandering around the house. And right off the bat, I noticed animals, animals everywhere, kind of a mess and lots of servants. And also that the house is like pretty in disarray. We have Mary playing the piano. It was kind of nice. It almost seemed like Mary was playing the theme song. But then we heard that she was actually just playing scales. Uh, Lydia and Kitty are running around. There's ribbons and dresses and scraps of fabric everywhere. The paint is peeling. So two things. One, they make them seem poorer than they are in this movie. They absolutely do. But also they have all these servants. So that was like balancing it out. Like maybe they are poor, but they're still considered middle class because they can afford servants and a cook and all of that. Um, But the animals and the, the slop, I was just like, oh, they want them to be poor. They're simultaneously trying to highlight the class difference between her and Darcy, but also trying to give us that sumptuous upstairs, downstairs feel that became so popular in this time period. I would even argue that there's something here to be said about, like, the fact that they choose to afford the servants over 
fixing things in the house. Mm. Because one thing that I'm not wild about in this adaptation is how awful and useless and shitty they make the mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so funny because I feel like they make her so much tamer in this adaptation. <laughs> She's definitely tamer. She is definitely less like out there. Yeah. But she yeah, doesn't yeah. do a whole lot. Oh, yeah. This. That's true. Yeah. It just seems like the film was really trying to emphasize like, she doesn't know how to do anything. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Lizzie walks into the house and we hear through a window that Netherfield Park is let at last. And we go in and we see Kitty and Lydia listening at the door. I wanted to note Jenna Malone. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Oh, fuck yeah. Also, Carrie Mulligan playing Kitty. Yes. This cast is bonkers. Like, there are so many huge actors in this cast that, like, I don't think had really gotten too much of their start at this point. Uh, But now looking back, you're like, wait, what the hell? What the hell? That's so funny because I was like, I love this kitty. She's great. I hope that her career (laughs) went places. You know, it did. It did. Yeah. So good for her. Um, She was awesome. She was maybe my favorite of the Bennett sisters in this. I think that she did a great job. Of all five of the Bennett sisters? I'm going to say it. Of all five, she was the best. What are the Scovels on that take? <laughs> well, listen, Kitty doesn't have a personality, famously. And this Kitty came out and was like, I'm going to have a personality. And it's that I have zero filter. She just speaks when she wants to. And I thought she was awesome. Um, so much different from the 1995 Kitty who just follows Lydia around and does what she wants. So much different from the book Kitty who just follows Lydia around and does what she wants. So props to this Kitty. So they're all listening at the door. And Lizzie comes over and she's like, we shouldn't be listening at the door. And they're like, no, 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 listen, it's, he's rich. And Lizzie's like, oh, he's rich. And Jane's like, he's rich. And then they're all listening at the door. And Donald Sutherland comes out. <laughs> Doing his best to tempt your loins. Yeah, well, listen. So the first time I watched this, I was like, who is this Daddy Bennett? And my mom was like, that's Donald Sutherland. I love Donald Sutherland. And I was like, he's not as good as the 1995. That one was hot. This guy's not. And <laughs> by the way, my my thing is that I have a crush on Daddy Bennett. And I think that's the hottest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> After watching this a few more times, Donald Sutherland could get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I could get behind the take vaguely with Donald Sutherland. I did not know what you were talking about in the 1995 version, but that is... (laughs) I stand by it. (laughs) We get him automatically telling them he's already gone to talk to Mr. Bingley. And in that moment, I was like, oh, because they're all talking over each other, we just got the first like 10 chapters of the book done. Yes. They trimmed all that fat. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, I'm okay with it. That's all we really needed. Mm -hmm. So when they're in the room... Mary keeps asking who they're talking about. Like, who is this guy who has all this money? Who is it? And and I love Mary. That's not new. But I like this Mary a lot. And I think that she's sadder. Less uncomfortable, less awkward, more socially aware. Yeah, she's very aware that they are ignoring her all the time. And it's sad. Yes. <laughs> After they say that Bingley is coming to the ball, this is just like a little moment that I liked. Kitty asks, Jane if she can borrow a dress and Jane is like no and Kitty's like I'll lend you my green slippers and Jane's like those are mine and the Kitty's like oh that actually brings me to my first study question which is how are the Bennett's different in this 
Well, some of the reasons that we said already, Kitty has way more of a personality. Love that for her. Jane hasn't said anything yet. Put that on back burner for Jane. But they're just like pure chaos. Yeah, there is a lot of chaos energy. They feel like very, as somebody who has two older sisters, they feel very much like actual authentic sisters to me. I am a middle of three sisters and this scene really resonates with me. Also, I think one of the markers in the book is that Lizzie doesn't get along with most of her family. She gets along with her dad and she gets along with Jane. And I think in this adaptation, because it's geared more towards a younger audience, a more modern audience, you see that the issues they have as a family are much more playful and that generally they are actually a unit. You see Jane and Lizzie having that banter with Lydia and Kitty and the sort of way in which Mr. Bennett prods at all the girls very lightly. Yeah, I like that Lydia, her nickname is Liddy. They're Liddy and Kitty. Yeah. Um, that was very cute. And Lizzie watching everyone fighting over dresses and stuff and laughing like, I'm so happy here with my pals. It was nice. Another thing that feels like it paved the way for the Little Women adaptation, actually. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. God, that's such a good adaptation. I've never read Little Women. Oh, me either. <laughs> but I really like that book. Yeah. I meant that movie. I mean, I cried the entire time I watched that film. Same. There wasn't even yeah. a break. <laughs> oh, same. It was a visceral experience for me. It's fine. Anyway. Yep. Next scene. <laughs> yes. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. So the next scene is the public ball. And it's a huge room. It looks more like an inn than anything that I've seen thus far. Um, everyone is dancing and talking while they're dancing. And it just looks like a lot of fun. Once again, I was watching this with my boyfriend. And Mike's take on this was, quote, this looks way more fun than the last movie's ball. <laughs> yeah, like people are dancing, dancing. And the dances before seemed kind of 
lifeless and like we're just walking in circles but they're like jolly they're drinking wine they're skipping around each other it was just a good time lizzie is talking to i think it's either charlotte or mary when she says this and she calls men humorless poppycocks yeah (laughs) oh she's talking to jane and charlotte because jane is telling her that she's going to eventually have to settle down with a man and lizzie's like no humorless poppycocks yeah no 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 phenomenal uh this scene was so funny I feel like there's like pockets of comedy throughout this film, but this scene really consistently, there is one shot that without fail always makes me laugh so hard. It's when Mr. Darcy comes in and they're all, you know, like, oh, and then they're all talking to him. And Elizabeth asks Mr. Darcy, do you dance? And he's like, not if I can help it. And then the shot stays on her for precisely as long as it should, because she like looks at him and then she just kind of like looks away like okay and (laughs) the shot goes on for too long and then cuts too fast somehow it's both too long and too fast and it's so funny (laughs) so funny (laughs) and it's just the way he says it to he's like not if i can help it and then she just kind of like raises her eyebrows and does that little oh with her mouth and she's like okay then (laughs) so relatable yes the thing is that you know that he's standing there like, oh, my God, I'm standing next to the pretty girl. Uh, What do I say? What do I say? And she says, do you dance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about this adaptation. From the moment you see him, you're like, this is a melting disaster of the human. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's talk about him entering the room and everyone just stops what they're doing and parts the seas for them to walk through. So weird i loved it i gotta say that that moment is bizarre it's so weird the orchestra is even like oh we better like as if they're like looking over their violin like who's that like (laughs) calm down (laughs) it was so funny and so right off the bat we see that it is just caroline bingley and darcy there is no louisa there is no mr hurst and again i went on a journey with this movie there was the first time I watched it where I was like, how dare they cut Mr. Hurst and Louisa? <laughs> and then there was the second time where I was like, they were really unnecessary to the plot, weren't they? Completely unnecessary. Yeah, yes. so, so that was okay, I guess. A note on the casting here. The entire first time that I watched this, which then led into a month of me ruminating on it, I thought that Bingley was played by Eddie Redmayne. I was just going to say that. Really? He totally looks like Eddie Redmayne. He is just ginger Eddie Redmayne. Thank God someone agrees with me. I know this actor from one other thing, and it's Rome. Oh. And he plays Octavius, young Octavius in Rome. What a weird choice. What? A sadistic little shit in that. That's wild. <laughs> Meanwhile, here, he's like the personification of like maple syrup. He's so sweet. Yeah. Is maple syrup. The other Bingley was a puppy dog. This guy has maple syrup all the way. Yes. Uh, the chocolate chip pancakes. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, now that's what I want. Lizzie calls them painted peacocks. I'm just loving all of her little quips. When they come in, Charlotte whispers to Lizzie that he owns half of Derbyshire and she's like oh, the miserable half. Another quip that I loved. And then as he's walking by her, he glances at her, snaps his head away. And Lizzie sits there like, huh. And then she lets out this really loud giggle. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, this scene is so 
funny. It's so funny. Every little moment. And they don't say a lot, but it's just in the little glances. And it's brilliant. So good. Once the music starts up again, Lizzie starts telling Jane, like, smile at Mr. Bingley. Smile at him. Smile. Go. And Bingley is, like, looking across the thing at her. Mrs. Bennett dances through the crowd to get to the girls to bring them over to Mr. Bingley. Yeah. (laughs) Such a vibe. Just captured, like, this is a party and everyone's dancing. And so I'm going to dance through the crowd. I like that this adaptation kind of shows, like, yes, we are also bound to these social contracts of like respectability and like what we were supposed to do and manners but also like we acknowledge that they're weird as hell like like it's not just that they are like oppressive I feel like we do get that vibe but also that they're just very strange so strange oh yeah another moment where they acknowledge the strangeness is a little bit later on when Lizzie arrives at Netherfield and she's in there and nobody's talking and she's like where's my sister and Darcy's like she's upstairs and then Lizzie is like okay yeah thanks and then she bows yeah I was like this is great she knows that this is just so weird that she has to do this right now (laughs) so yeah totally agree so they meet Bingley and Darcy and then Bingley and Jane are talking and he is just a big old dork and he's like uh I don't read much because I'd much rather be outside not that I can't read I can read I promise (laughs) and it's so cute these two honest to god have so much chemistry i know the like main story is very much between lizzie and darcy but like one of the things i appreciate about this adaptation is that bingley and jane do not have much screen time but the little screen time they have they use it they milk it Mm -hmm. yeah they sell it really well yeah another instance in which they're cutting down the meat of the story to be more condensed is we find out at this ball that the regiment are coming and we're gonna go see them asap so that happens Lizzie and Darcy are standing next to each other. This is the moment of, nah, not if I can help it. And then Lizzie and Charlotte go under the bleachers. <laughs> the stairs? This is the weirdest shot. This is so out of place. They seem like they're in high school and they're under the bleachers. And it's like in like a teen movie where the girls are gossiping under the stairs and then they like hear the boy that they like above them. It's just exactly that. Yes. So strange. Oh, yeah. That one. That moment's a bit weird. Yeah. So that's where Bingley says to Darcy that Jane's sister is pretty cute. And Darcy's like, uh, she's tolerable. Yeah, but not handsome enough to tempt me. And like I said earlier, this moment in the book was malicious. And this moment here is like he's just so uncomfortable talking about himself. It's like the opposite of the bird that's like, I am uncomfortable when we are not about me. Yeah, yes. I am uncomfortable when we are about me. Oh, entirely. It read like it, it read like somebody being like, Do you think she's hot? And somebody be like, No, I don't right. know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Once again, the whole story is a little bit different just with these little tweaks because you see at the beginning here that Darcy obviously is already so into her and she is kind of into him that she's like oh no he insulted me but in the book and in the 1985 it's very clear from the beginning Darcy's not giving her the time of day it's not until he learns how smart she is and how witty she is that he starts to understand that maybe this is a girl he'd be attracted to but here it's like immediate yeah Mm -hmm. so then we get back to the dancing Bingley is dancing with Charlotte and he's like Your friend Charlotte is so amusing. And Mrs. Bennett jumps right in to embarrass everyone and talk about how ugly Charlotte is. What a hard moment for Mrs. Bennett. Tough. Happens in the books, but 
tough look for Mrs. Bennett. This is a moment that going into it, I was like, this doesn't happen until like way later in the book. But Mrs. Bennett brings up that there was a man once who wrote a lot of poetry for Jane. And Lizzie is like, poetry kills romance. And Darcy's like, I thought poetry was the food of love. So this this whole interaction happens, I think, way later in the book, but it was perfect here. And I will tell you why. Darcy says, well, what should one do then to uh, yeah. encourage affection? And then the little side glance that he does, like, Ooh, did I just say that out loud? Uh. And Lizzie says, dancing, even if one's partner is only barely tolerable. So good. So good. What a sass moment from her. And she just turns and exits. She's like, mm, bye. Yep. <laughs> and also, it's just one of those moments where clearly she makes it so clear there that she hurt him, mm-hmm. <laughs> which to me says, Darcy, that's when you make amends for that. Like, yeah, be like, oh, sorry. Well, I guess he was in front of her mom and I don't know, it was awkward. I don't think he's a man who has ever been told that apologies are good. Oh, like, no, I don't not. think that he has even the understanding that you would have to apologize for for that kind of thing. Yeah, let's get into Darcy's psyche a little bit because he grew up in this home where, you know, I don't know anything about his mom, but his dad loved someone else more. His sister is perfect. And he was probably put under a lot of pressure to, like, be the strong man Mm -hmm. and live up to his dad's expectations, try to earn his love when his love was all going to Wickham. And he probably is pretty fucked up from that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't think he knows what to do in this situation. I don't know if it's specifically for this adaptation or if it's for others as well. But I know that uh, I know that Mr. Darcy has been called like good representation for several kinds of neurodivergent people as well i know that mr darcy in like autistic spaces is usually seen as like we accept him as one of our own i'm not autistic and can't speak to that but something that i've seen in the commentary and i've seen the same with like you know just general social anxiety general anxiety disorder etc etc and I, i do like that in this version like you get the sense that the way he has been raised has not benefited him and has like lasting, lasting effects on how he deals with the social world. I, I think that's actually really nice. And I think, again, is like another check mark for me. I'm like, I like this one. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I totally agree. I've seen a lot of the same uh, commentary discourse. Again, also, I'm neurotypical, can't speak to the experiences of those with autism, but I have seen many people with autism relate to Mr. Darcy. And I think this adaptation definitely plays up how he feels deep discomfort in some of these situations with some of these really strict social norms. I've also seen that for this adaptation with Mr. Collins. Oh, yeah, okay. Which we'll get into Mr. Collins, but I've had a few people mention that for him as well. We'll get into how much I love this Mr. Collins (laughs) later. But yeah. So then we cut to after the ball. And what is this lighting? Lizzie and Jane are underneath a blanket and it's like they have a (laughs) flashlight in there. And I was like, my mom was like, is that a flashlight? And I was like, it's probably a candle. And then I was like, wait a minute, that would burn the house down. What's going on? Yeah, it's basically very much, oh, we want these two actresses to look beautiful. Yes. But there is no way there could really be light under these covers. (laughs) There is like an almost identical shot in Practical Magic. Yes. I feel like this is like just a shot between beautiful sisters. That is like, it always happens. But also 
it is so intimate Mm -hmm. and this is the case for how I feel about practical magic and it was the case for me in the scene I kept being like are they gonna make out like what is this that's exactly what my boyfriend said (laughs) yes there's also an identical scene in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and they do make out yeah Yeah. (laughs) and that is the end of that scene my study question was what air does the ball capture and what does it not capture from the books i'll tell you what it does not capture in the books the room was very small and in and in the 1995 the room was very small well i guess in the book they never said it was very small so maybe my perception is being colored by the 1995 but when i saw the 1995 i was like oh everyone can hear what everyone is saying because the room is small and that's why it makes things awkward like lizzie overhearing darcy saying the mean thing about her for example or someone hearing mrs bennett talking about how jane is going to marry rich so that's what it did not capture for me again it felt very natural it felt like a bunch of real people like having fun in the old timey way like it felt legit like okay so one thing that always gets me about this movie and I don't know enough about like this era of of dance or any era of dance but like they didn't really care about the beat huh like it was just there was music (laughs) happening and also dancing happening the two were not really (laughs) affiliated but I also kind of like that. Like, I like that there's these complex dances and everyone knows how to do them. But also that, like, yeah, you know how to do them because it's not actually really that tied to anything else going on. I like the vibe that this building was kind of large, like, again, kind of like barn-like. But it felt like somewhere that would accommodate both people of the Bennett family class and people of the Darcy family class. Like, it felt like a place where there was a vague enough aesthetic and, like, budget on it that people from just around could all be there and nobody would feel too out of place. Yeah. That is exactly what I was thinking about with it because, and I think this is also, I see it as a benefit but also a disadvantage. It captures pure joy. Like, like it's a joyous scene. But in the book and in the 1995, one of the things about this ball is that the Bingleys and Darcy do look out of place. Mm, They feel mm -hmm. out of place, except Bingley, who can kind of weave into any crowd he wants. But here, if you're not having fun, you're either Darcy, who needs to, like, run and hide, Mm -hmm. or you're Caroline, who's just vicious. There's not a lot of sympathy for why anyone would feel out of place here, you know? Right. Like, when they walked in in the 1995 version, it was like what are you doing here? They had the same like everyone stop and look moment, but it was definitely a poor people's gathering. There was a shot in this that I just want to call out and then we can move on to the next scene of Darcy standing on the far end and everyone dancing in front of him and he's standing like six feet above everyone else. He's so tall and it's so (laughs) awkward. Like this poor man, you know he wants to just like Homer Simpson back into a bush Mm -hmm. but he is so incapable because he's so tall and he dresses like he is always in mourning and he looks so stressed out like his vibe is incapable of invisibility because he's just exuding stress (laughs) oh yeah also his hair is so funny to me (laughs) it's so funny it's such a specific haircut that I think I might actually be currently rocking you guys can't see because I have my headphones on but it like flips out 
in all of these places and his bangs are like his bangs. so uneven. I call it the period piece mullet. Yeah. It's a mullet. He has a mullet. His bangs look like they're crying all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so weird. It's like chopped to stick out a little bit at every side. And I'm like, why? It's like he filmed the scene in the rain first and then <laughs> they filmed the rest of the movie. <laughs> and he's just damp. <laughs> Anyway, so moving on to the next scene. It's after the ball, and Mrs. Bennett is recounting the ball to everyone. And this is a great moment of the dialogue direction that you were talking about, Will, where everyone is just talking over each other. Mr. Bennett's like, oh my God, we were all there. And Mrs. Bennett is talking about how he's going to die very soon, and one of them has to get married rich. And he's like, yes, I'm going to die very soon. And then it's just, it's all so overlappy, and it's yeah. so much, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Then a letter arrives for Jane inviting her to dine with Caroline Bingley. Mr. Bingley is going to be out. Mrs. Bennett's very upset about this, and she tells Jane she must go on horseback, and everyone's like, on horseback? And then thunderclap. The carriage? But the carriage! The carriage! But the carriage! The thunderclap. This movie loves thunderclap as punctuation in a way that I absolutely cannot take seriously, and I think really spoils some otherwise like moving dramatic moments. They're so funny. Like, they're so over the top. (laughs) There was one scene, I was watching this with the subtitles on, and it was just Lizzie and Wickham talking, I think, and it said, thunder rolls ominously in the distance. And I was like, (laughs) I didn't catch that. Yeah. (laughs) I love that the subtitles were basically like, you're supposed to find this ominous right now. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So Jane arrives at Netherfield soaking wet, and she gives this cute little sneeze. Achoo! Then the next morning, Lizzie is like, this is unacceptable. It's raining. And Lizzie pulls a towel off of the rack, but like it's raining on the towel. So the towel is wet and Lizzie starts drying her hair with a wet towel. (laughs) Also, like, it's just this moment of like, how come Lizzie is out getting soaking wet and she's fine, but Jane is like bedridden after a ride in the rain? Well, Lizzie was just hanging out with the chickens or something outside, I think. And Jane walked three miles. Rode three miles. She rode. (laughs) Oh, Right. Yeah. Why is that? Why did Jane get sick? Poor plotting. (laughs) Poor plot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe Jane just like, she's like a sweet, frail, fragile little thing. I don't know. I kind of get it. Mm -hmm. Right. Lizzie loves to walk. Yeah. Yeah. She says that a lot in this movie. She's like, I really like to walk. We know. Mm-hmm. We know. So she's she's got a strong constitution. So we jump to Netherfield. First, we see Lizzie walking to Netherfield, and it's this beautiful, like, misty, mm-hmm. just grass and one tree. It kind of looks like the beginning of The Lion King, but in <laughs> England and in the rain. And so Lizzie's walking. She gets to Netherfield. We see Caroline and Bingley in the breakfast room, and Caroline says that their friend is redecorating their ballroom in the French style. A little unpatriotic, don't you think? I love that moment. It's <laughs> just like the essence of them. So the servant comes in and announces Lizzie is there, and Darcy's head just perks up. And it's just he's already so in love with her and it's so obvious and when she walks in he shoots out of his chair like like he's got a fire under his butt he's just like oh. I feel like I need to point out that she looks ridiculous yes like yes <laughs> like she walked through the mud mm-hmm. so her like petticoat has gotten 
muddy, mm-hmm. but she's got like 70s Stevie Nicks hair <laughs> and looks like she's been on a mountain for like three weeks. Like, I don't understand. This was a hell of a storm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Completely unpinned all of her hair. <laughs> yeah. Why did she do that? First of all. Second of all, it's not like that. I get that it's uncommon for people to walk places, but you're not going to get like that messed up walking. And also the fact that Caroline just right off the bat was like, good God, did you walk here? And Lizzie's like, I did. (laughs) And then they just stand there in silence for a good long time. Yeah. The reason this partially bothers me is this movie sometimes leans into this. Lizzie doesn't care. She's a tomboy trope. It's like Lizzie's not a tomboy. She's just smart and witty. Like They try to kind of push that like, I'm not like other girls, which I think was very of the time. Yes, absolutely. It sets it as a 2005 movie. And also that really, I think, set a public opinion of Pride and Prejudice, which is that it follows the I'm not like other girls trope. And I, and in a way, I guess it does. But Lizzie Bennett isn't. I almost just said she's not like that. But that would just like be double playing into that trope. I would say the story in general doesn't shit on other women. No. Yeah. Except Lydia. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. except Lydia. But like the the uplifting of Jane, even the understanding and the compassion for Charlotte, the story doesn't need to make Lizzie different than them. Right. She's just witty. She's just effervescent. And she she wins Darcy on her wits, not her looks. Right, which that critic at the beginning would disagree with, but fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Oh, God. So Lizzie goes upstairs to go see Jane, and Bingley comes in, and he's like, oh, it's been such a pleasure. I mean, not that she's sick. It's a pleasure that she's here and sick. Uh, uh." And in these moments, I was like, it makes so much sense that Bingley and Darcy are best friends. Yeah. (laughs) They really made it work. In the book, I was very much like, I guess they balance each other out. We have an introvert and an extrovert, but they just got two big nerds in this. Yeah, they're they're just nerds. Like, you know, these two guys were like a little bit too old, quote unquote, to be playing with Star Wars action figures, but like <laughs> they did it anyway. Yes. You know, they probably made like home movies together that they never show anybody, but they say like, no, 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 they were so good, actually. Like they were really good. And then they go back and watch them. They were like, oh, no, like. They were they were those weird kids. Yeah. You're basically just describing my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, Becca, because we've discussed that you're a Jane and and he's probably a Bingley. He's hardcore Bingley. There <laughs> we go. So cut to my least favorite part of this film. Cut to the part of the film that, speaking of my boyfriend, he paused and rewound three to four times because he could not believe it happened. It was disruptive, I would say, (laughs) to the flow of the film. It's weird. It's so weird. It's (laughs) so weird. So Mrs. Bennett comes in to tell Mr. Bennett something and Mr. Bennett's bringing a pig in and he's talking about their pig and zoom in on the pig's balls and Mrs. Bennett looking at them with her eyebrows (laughs) raised like, ooh, I don't know what happened in that shot. No. I don't know if they meant to put the pig nuts on display. Oh, they did. They totally did. 
And if so, did they let the actress in on that before they took a close-up shot of her face immediately after the two <laughs> Because it looks like she is, like, sexually attracted to that pig. Oh, yeah. She's into it. The way it's framed. <laughs> this was such a weird choice. I... I have questions and I don't want answers. I don't want them. For sure. That's how I feel about this moment. I think that a lot of people watching the movie noticed it and chose to ignore it. Yep. And I think that that's probably what we have to do. I've heard people get mad about the pig walking through the house as something that's like an exaggeration of the Bennett's poverty. No, they were bringing it inside because they were going to show it on a... I, I was trying to listen to what he was saying. He's like, it has nothing on this other pig, but like, it's like going to yeah. market or some shit. Yeah, yeah. but like Mr. Bennett being involved directly with handling a pig is like not totally in period. But I've not heard many people be like, hey, why did they throw pig testicles on my screen for a solid two seconds? It's so wild. Yeah, we've already spent too much time talking about it because it's just that. (laughs) Agree to disagree. I think this is important. This is one of the hard hitting questions we need to ask. Why were there pig testicles? What were you trying to say? Were you trying to imply something about Mrs. And Mr. Bennett's love life. Yeah. Like, were those testicles as big as his testicles, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. I think that this is perhaps a moment to bring up the camera work in this film. So the cinematography, beautiful. But the actual camera work, weird as hell. So weird. Yep. (laughs) It's so weird. It was so distracting. The editing as well. Like, there are a lot of really quick shots that just whip by. And then the camera work itself, I get that they were trying to go for, like, following the naturalistic dialogue into naturalistic camera work and having it be like a little bit shaky um zooming in for emotional impact but it almost felt like it was shot like a western at times like Mm. it was so cartoony in the zooms that like I often could not take them seriously because they were so exaggerated what a weird choice Yeah, there were a lot of really over-exaggerated zooms, and there were a lot of moments that I have picked out to share with you all as we go through that I decided, and this might already exist, but we need a supercut of all the moments that seem like a horror film just spliced together. (laughs) And I've I've selected a a good number of them. I'm sure there are more. Do the pig nuts make it in? Yes, the pig nuts could definitely be in there. Oh, yeah. There are just so many. And yeah, the camera work is bonkers. And that was just such a weird choice. And I hope that the person that was carrying that camera in particular was like, I'm going to do this and see if they catch it. And then they accidentally used that take. (laughs) Oh, I also liked in this moment when Mr. Bennett looks up, he he says something and he calls her Blossom. Mm. And I thought that was nice. Like, it showed a little lightness in their relationship. I thought this Mr. and Mrs. Bennett loved each other so much more than the 95. Absolutely. This is the Mr. and Mrs. Bennett that I keep saying is like a shadow Mr. and Mrs. Bennett in the books. Mm. I don't know why I keep saying books. It's one book, but book. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. So then we get to go meet the militia. And Lydia is so excited and she's like, I'm going to throw my handkerchief in and someone's going to pick it up and then we're going to meet and then we're going to fall in love. And she does. And they just trample it. And she is so offended. We get our first glimpse at Wickham, who I have to note to me looks like a kind of second rate knockoff Orlando Bloom. And maybe that's just because I was thinking Kira Knightley, mm, Pirates mm-hmm. of the Caribbean, Orlando Bloom. No, no. He looks so much like Orlando Bloom. Yeah, I totally agree. But like less hot. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, like, no offense to this guy. It's just that I don't like the writing for this Wickham. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, he's so, we're going to get into it, but, like, he's so over the top with how he's like, I'm poor and sad, that I think it was impossible for him to do a good job. We're jumping a little ahead. Yes, we are. But, uh. I would argue that that's the worst part of this film. Anyway, Agreed. go back to uh, where we are in the film. <laughs> yes. So we go back to Netherfield and Caroline is just thirst trapping over Darcy, talking about how well he writes and will he write to his sister for her. And he is shutting her down time and time again. And I think in theme with this movie everyone's a bunch of nerds and Caroline likes to act like she's cool, but she also can't take a hint. Nope. <laughs> Caroline Bingley, notoriously bad flirt. Yeah. This is the conversation that happens in the book at some point where they're talking about accomplished young ladies and Charles tries to pipe up and she goes, what do you mean, Charles? And I just, I really liked this Caroline. I thought that she was so funny. Oh, I think she's brilliant. She's so wicked. Yes. Wicked. Yeah. So they're talking about what makes a woman accomplished. And Caroline lists all these things. And Lizzie has a book in her hand. And Darcy says she also must improve her mind by extensive reading. And Lizzie snaps her book closed. She slaps it. She's like, <laughs> This is amazing. I've seen memes of this moment, which is like, oh, Darcy likes reading. <laughs> and then they take a turn about the room. And everyone has seen this in like 2020. My exercises take a turn about the room memes. Yep. And, and it's everything that you could hope it would be. Honestly, they walk around. They tease Darcy. Darcy does not want to be teased. Also, Bingley, just like what I love about this Bingley is that he doesn't seem to get all the, like, snark and tension in the room. Not at all. This puppy. The laugh that he does when he tries to diffuse the situation. Yeah. I didn't even read it as diffusing the situation. I thought he was like, oh, she said something funny. (laughs) What a sweet, sweet boy. He goes, ha ha. And then he points at her and it's so cute. It's really cute. What a freaking chicken nugget. (laughs) Pure, perfect, pure little chicken nugget. He really is. So then... They ask Darcy, like, what should we do if we're not going to laugh at you? Like, we're trying to find a fault in you. Why does Darcy seem like he has this answer prepared? He, like, goes on this little rant. He's like, oh, it's that I I find faults in people and my good opinion what's lost is lost forever. And it's so, like, not in response to the situation at all. I was like, not at all. thinking about this? Yeah. It's like a complete non sequitur. Like, honey, what are you? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I was super taken out of it. Then I was like, maybe he's just awkward and I think most things can be written off as that I mean part of it is that those are really famous lines from the book and they just like throw them in there there were a few moments like that where I was like you actually you haven't been using the book word for word so you don't need this but you did it anyway yeah it translates weird and for me I was just like yeah I get it he's real awkward yeah so the next morning the rest of the Bennett sisters arrive and we have Well, before they come in, Bingley is sitting at the table, like, slumped over, and I really liked this, like, them in their natural habitat moment that we got to see with Darcy and Caroline being very upright and Bingley, like, sitting back, relaxing, eating his breakfast. The Bennets arrive. We have Kitty and Lydia and Mrs. Bennet in matching costumes. And then Mary. And Mary in black. Pure black. Mood. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Uh, I really like... Mary, this poor girl. Just this Wednesday Adams here to fuck up everyone's day. I love it. There's a meme out there that's like the four of them sitting on the couch or something. 
And it's like in order. It's like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Mary's Monday. <laughs> oh, she is. She's a little Monday girl. Kitty, this is one of those moments where Kitty has no self-control. She is sitting there and Lydia's like asking about a ball or something. And Kitty's just like, please throw a ball. And Lizzie's like, Kitty, shut up. <laughs> and then Mary says that balls are no fun. And Lizzie's like, thank you, Mary. Thank you, Mary, is the mood for the whole movie. Poor Mary. Oh, yes. Yeah. So then they take Jane home, and they're all getting into the carriage, and Darcy helps Lizzie into the carriage, and he touches her hand, and she looks down, and she's like, and then she watches him walk away, and then he takes his hand, and he does this hand flex, which I know is a very famous hand flex, and it is... It's hot. I'll admit it. It's a hot hand flex. I don't know why it's so hot, but it's so hot. Like, the, I, it got me. I was like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know that feeling when someone who you're attracted to, like, touches it and you get that, like, prickle in your yes. skin? Yep. You can feel him get that. Yes. It's so sexy. And you get it because it's, like, the first time they've made contact skin to skin. Yeah, it's fucking hot. You can even see her feel it a little bit in that moment. Yeah, when he touches her hand, she looks down, like, startled, like, oh. Oh. And she doesn't even know she likes him yet. And then he raises one of those very bushy brows and then sort of walks away. And he's just, like, like something inside him is a little broken. Ugh, sexy. Sexy. It is. I'm imagining the audition process, like, yeah, okay, yeah, you read the lines fine. What about your hands? <laughs> <laughs> I need to see your hands. How's your hand acting? <laughs> they just have a bunch of men hold Kira Knightley's hand, stare at it, walk away, and then just go boop with their hand. <laughs> oh, man, it's so... I've been walking around lately, like, doing the hand flex uh-huh. to see if it makes me feel powerful or something. It doesn't really... But <laughs> that is something, though. It's just... It's something. And then we go home and we find out that Mr. Collins is coming. And that is the end of that scene. So my study question is sort of... It's about the hand flex. It's about what we've seen so far. The interactions between Darcy and Lizzie at this time translate so differently than other adaptations of the story or iterations, I'll say. What do you make of how the story is being told right now? And by the story, I mean specifically the romance. Well, it gives us a romance. It gives us a love story from the beginning. From the moment Darcy sees her, he's like, that's the girl I'm going to try to woo, but I can't do it yet because I don't know how. And in the book and the other adaptation, the only other adaptation that I've seen, he genuinely seems to hate her and she genuinely seems to hate him. Here, every interaction is charged and we're like, oh, there's something here to see. Mm -hmm. They feel really inevitable and neither of them wants it. Like (laughs) they're both stressed out by this fact. I like that the attraction is mutual too. Like it's not just that in other adaptations, he won't give her the time of day. Uh, And then this he does. I also feel like the same is true for Lizzie in most other adaptations. Like, I don't really get the sense that she is into him at all. But she's kind of like, she finds humor in him in this version, which I think is really sweet. And also, like, maybe I like this version a lot just because, like, Lizzie and I look for the same things. If if we're going to talk to a man, uh, we're going to look for the same things. And it's, one, does he expect me to impress him slash like have I not already impressed him by being myself uh two 
is he a big dork that I can laugh at? <laughs> uh, yeah. So maybe that's just why I like it. But I like their vibe in this. Like, I like that they gain things from each other immediately. I like that they're both challenged in a way that doesn't feel quite so frustrating. And I mean, arguably in this scene specifically with this, like, what is an accomplished woman and him being such an ass, like, this seems like the first point of real tension and real, like, distrust and almost, like, betrayal for this, like, weird rapport that they have. But I like that they have that weird rapport. I like that they, you know, that they're both challenged by each other in a way that is not just stressful, but kind of fun. Yeah. I'll also add that in other adaptations, they seem genuinely afraid of each other. Like, every yeah. time they run into each other, it's like, uh, sorry, I got to go the other way. Mr. Darcy. Yeah, Mr. Darcy. In this one, it's he seems eager to talk to her every time. Like, let me fix this. And she seems... Like, she's going to laugh at him because he's a big dork and she's not going to run away. And I think that that allows them to be in the same room, which allows for electricity to build. Definitely. I love that. I love all those takes. I totally resonate with describing them as inevitable in this one. Because from the very beginning, it's like, this is a love story. Whereas in Pride and Prejudice, it's like, this is Fight Club. Yeah. And on that note, we are going to end that episode there because we've already recorded an hour and a half's worth of material. But Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet, where they can read your stuff, etc.? Yeah, for sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at at Will W. Writes. That's W-I-L-W underscore writes. You can find my website at willwilliams.reviews. And you can find Hug House, my production company, at hughouse.productions. Fabulous. Until next time, listeners, stay proper. And find yourself a dork. (laughs) Find yourself a big dork. Hot and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our beautiful show art is designed by Torrance Brown. To learn more about our show and our team, you can check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you like what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>